Each week of November, you may have noticed, we have been focusing on gospel stories that have been set at the table. So the first week, we considered the invitation to the table and learned again that all are welcome to sit and eat with Jesus. That's the tax collectors, the sinners, even us. And then last week, we dug into a story about what's served up on this table. We asked ourselves, should anything be left off that menu? And we heard, along with Peter, God's resounding declaration that there is nothing and no one deemed unclean or unworthy. So this morning, we turn to the Gospel according to John and find another table story. And in it, we come to a table. It's not at the tax collector's house, and it's not at Peter's place. But it's the one set out in the house of the Lord. Reading from chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Passover was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This story is my gospel. And this Jesus is one that I often turn to. You know what I mean? It's a a scripture that inspires me and it sustains me. And it is well-worn with my frequent returns to it. I love this story when I get to see my Jesus wielding a whip against the injustices of the world wherever they may turn up, even when they're on his house. Yes, indeed, this scene of Jesus fueled with righteous anger, displaying publicly and with passion his prophetic stance against corrupted power, it gives us the freedom and it gives us the obligation to do likewise. And we progressive Christians return to this table-turning Jesus often, and we should. It should get us equally fired up against these injustices of the world. But if we're honest, if I'm honest, I usually seek this text out to affirm my stances against those other people, those other powers, that I can with ease and objectivity, distance some might say, identify as being against Jesus' teaching or at odds with Jesus' liberating love and radical welcome. Now, I read this text, and I hear a John Williams score underneath it. 
dun 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 I imagine myself in knee-high boots and some variation of spandex, taking inspiration from Wonder Woman, perhaps walking alongside Jesus as we approach the temple. And he has this awesome cord of whips raised high in his hand, his lasso of truth, if you will. And maybe I have one on my hip, too. I'd be ready and willing to sling it in the name of Jesus. And we barge in and we stare down the bandits, those horrible people who have hoarded the Holy of Holies. And we would yell out in screech-like tenor of Ted Neely from Jesus Christ Superstar, Get out! It's so easy to see who I'm yelling at. And maybe they're the same people you're yelling at. It's them. It's the others. It's those ministers who stand in their public public pulpits and shame trans women for coming to church dressed in the clothes they want to wear. It's the part of the American United Methodist Church that feels just fine that we're 95% white. It's those nationalists who want to build higher walls to keep people out who are seeking refuge and safety. It's those rogue Methodists, the ones plotting to leave if we don't bar the doors of our sanctuaries and ceremonies to God's queer children. It's those that express the supersessionist claim that the only way possible to dwell in the house of God is to get there by way of Jesus. It's them. They've co-opted God's house. They've blocked the way to the divine. It's them. But then, the words of Anne Lamott come to my mind. You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Sound familiar? It's so easy to stare down those money changers that sit securely behind their tables if I don't in any way identify with them. But it's a great deal harder to sit with the uncomfortable truth that I might have more in common with the money changers than I like. So let's think about the role that they play, these money changers, and their purpose in temple life. It might help us understand that Jesus is not just demanding that they get out of God's house, but also asking us to banish from within ourselves behaviors, thoughts, biases, motivations that block us and others from the altar of God. Those money changers, they worked for the temple. They were alongside the authorities, and they dedicated their lives to protecting and prioritizing ways for people to live out their faith. They were the insiders, church folks, probably knew how to bake a casserole. They were likely people who deep down believed they were helping others, their larger community, making it easier to pray and to practice their beliefs. The temple was the place, after all, you went to offer yourself and your service 
and indeed your sacrifice to God. So these folks were a part of helping make that happen. But their function tells us a little more. Their tables were set inside the larger temple, but they stood on the outside of the threshold to the altar. And if you wanted to go to the altar to offer a sacrifice, you had to go through them first as a part of several steps to get through and be allowed entrance. The money changers sat behind those tables with stacks of coins. And before you could approach this altar, people had to change. They had to change their coins from ones used outside the temple, Roman coins boasting the face of the emperor on them, to temple-approved coins, ones that you could use to buy animals for sacrifice. Now, I wish it were true, since the ridding of those money changers, that the way to the altar was cleared of all barriers. I wish it were true that no one ever felt they had to change themselves to be a certain way, check a certain category, look like this, speak like that, in order to take their joys, their concerns, their whole selves to God. But that's not true. I mean, we know that. So much harm has been done while presiding over the altar table. The moral injury done or perpetuated in the name of church and Christ is staggering, and it's long-lasting too. And those harmed are not just the victims and the grace-mongering and the power-hoarding. It's those who also sit behind the tables, presiding over the requirements, the expectations that force change upon souls and selves. The work of Marcella Altas-Reed brazenly looks into exclusion practices of the church to see that everybody is stained by them. She writes that to liberate the oppressed means also to liberate the oppressors from the sin of oppression, which engulfs their lives. On the one hand, inclusivity liberates the oppressed. It liberates the excluded. And on the other hand, clearing the path to God for all frees oppressors from continuing to participate in structures of sin as perpetrators of another's suffering. Because systems that oppress, they take all of us, they take the victims, and they take the perpetrators. So when Jesus cleanses the temple, he rids it entirely of the regulation of righteousness. And it benefits us all on either side of the table. So this morning, let's be courageous. Let's be vulnerable enough to consider how this table-turning text might convict us, you, me, all of us sitting here. Let's allow the gospel to find us on the wrong side of the table while also inspiring us when we do get it right. So turn in with me. And I invite you to consider these questions. Over what tables do you preside? Where do you sit with relative ease and comfort? When are you in the power seat? 
And consider this. Who doesn't experience the same feeling of welcome and embrace in that space? How is the path to acceptance limited there? So maybe instead of presiding over fancy inlaid altar tables, we preside over pretty ordinary looking ones, the ones in our daily lives, the ones in our kitchens, boardrooms, offices, neighbor's apartment, or even in the park. How can we make sure that those tables, where we hold even the slightest power and advantage, are welcome sites for all? About a year ago, Julia Tulloch and I were having a conversation about power, you know, like you do. And we were talking about the fact that, as women, we sometimes believe ourselves to have less power than we actually do. And this mistake extends to other minorities as well. We accidentally erase or fail to see the power that we actually do hold, the tables over which we preside. She used a term from Melanie Morrison's anti-racism work that up to that point I had not heard used in that way and have since done some digging into. We all have, here's the term, a sphere of influence. So what if we're not all CEOs of corporations or executive directors of nonprofits or even presidents of boards? We still have personal, spiritual, and relational power. And it is also real power. So think of your book clubs, your co-op boards, your neighbor's uh, coffee clatch, the playground group you hang out with, the after-work drinks group you go to see to every Friday night, or your knitting club. You have influence there. Well, after talking to Julia, I started thinking through my own I serve on a nonprofit board for an after-school program in the Bronx Public Schools. It's a robust program, and it does exceptional work to provide very affordable and super interesting after-school programming in the schools that the kids actually attend. So my skills and my experience, they're useful there. It's one way I can pitch into the neighborhood and to Nora's school life, and it gets me out of being a class parent. Anyhow, with that conversation of Julia in mind, I looked around the table at our next board meeting. We were all white women, save one, a woman who identified as biracial. And we serve schools that are among the most racially diverse I've ever been in contact with. It was just plain and obviously wrong. And what's more, it was really easy to fix. It just required a deep breath and a load of courage to push through any white fragility to call it out when nominations time came for new board members. So I took Julia into the boardroom with me and my brain and in my heart, and I geared up, so to speak. I wasn't going to let her down. And now we have my friend Sarah on the board, a Spanish-speaking Dominican woman whose two boys attend the program and who, as a guidance counselor in a Bronx public school, has loads of experience and expertise that she can bring to the dang board. But turning in 
To see where we have blocked others is not always simple, especially when it moves us into some discomfort. It's harder to clear the way for those who bring in a difference that could threaten us, our standing, our place at the table. So consider our denomination. Right now, anxieties are running high, and groups on the left and groups on the right are volleying for power. And they're coming up with strategies and plans to take the denomination their way. The most conservatives are plotting an outright escape route, if even a compromise on LGBTQ inclusion is achieved. And the progressives, those that want to reduce as much harm as possible to the LGBTQ community in the church, that progressive block has split some prioritizing a starting place, others the conclusion. Some support the Queer Clergy Caucus's plan, the simple plan, the one to take all discriminatory language out of the discipline that says homosexuals are incompatible with Christian teaching. It would also make one policy for all of the conferences, right? It would allow LGBTQ ordination and marriage no matter where you live. So some others support the one church plan, the one proposed by the Commission on the Way Forward. And this one is endorsed by the majority of bishops, including our own and our friend Bishop Karen Olivito, an out lesbian. It's the plan that would remove all harmful language, but leave it up to conferences to decide if they want to ordain queer folks or officiate weddings of same-gendered couples. So we, progressive and prophetic voices that have pushed and prodded to get to this important moment, are being pitted against each other. And we desperately need each other if we are to embrace the power as one block that we have to reduce as much harm as possible. What to do? I'm going to admit it is hard. It's hard for me as a queer clergy person to work from a starting place that excludes those queer folks in regions and in conferences where they're going to be abandoned and isolated for a time in a compromised starting point. Those tiny blue dots in vast red places. They won't be able to marry or be ordained or even be seen as having sacred worth. And that's really hard for me. But if I only think about my own representation at the table, whose seat do I eliminate? What about those folks positioned in the center? or in the center-left, working hard just to hold their congregations together? What about those in the regional South, my homeland, who want to go to a church in the denomination they love, and they see this compromise both as something significant and as far as we can go in the current moment? What about the Methodists outside the United States, where homosexuality is still a crime? At the end of the day, 
I have to imagine the church that I hope still stands on the other side of February. It wouldn't be the Methodist church I have come to love if it didn't have theological, racial, economic, and cultural diversity. So I try and imagine what Jesus would clear out of the way in order to make the approach to the altar free. And I do see parts of myself blocking the way for others. Now, friends, I stand here today as one affirmed for ordination. It was a big week. I stand here only because, only because of decades of seriously hard and dedicated work by queer folks and by allies to make space for me. So what kind of a Jesus follower would I be if I didn't then try to make a little space for somebody else? We follow Jesus, and Jesus turns the tables of our world around, even the ones where we sit snugly and secure. Amen.